0: And good morning once again, and once again, Dads, happy Father's Day. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 4? John chapter 4. This morning we are in part three of a four-part series that we've entitled True Worship, and um, the passage we have focused in on for this series is primarily John 4 verses 23 and and 24 and I'll just read it for you. Jesus said the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, as we've already pointed out, the subject of worship permeates and dominates the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's a subject that is very important to God, listen, and one He wants to be just important, just as important to us. In Israel, a man could become a soldier at 20. So if you were 20, you can go to battle fighting the enemies of God. A Levite, that was a tribe, Uh, could not start their service to God in the tabernacle and temple until they were 25. But a man couldn't become a priest who was the leader of the worship of God until age 30. It was God's way of communicating to his people that worship was the priority that demanded the highest level of maturity because, guess what, it carried with it the greatest responsibility. Now, last week we looked at the definition of worship, and this morning we want to look at the act of worship. And uh, some of the things we've kind of uh, talked about in the past, you'll maybe hear some of the stuff repeated, but let me say this, when it comes to worship, there's only two kinds, true worship and false worship, or acceptable and unacceptable worship and this is implied from our text in john's gospel where jesus said that the father is seeking true worshipers the fact that god is looking for true worshipers implies there must be false worshipers out there somewhere they're not that hard to find a fact that jesus affirmed when he said to this samaritan woman in verse 22 he said you in the greek is plural you samaritans worship what you do not know We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. The whole gist of this passage is that God must be worshipped on his terms. God must be worshipped on his terms to offer up to him forms of worship that are contrary to the guidelines that he laid down in his word is to offer him unacceptable worship. The fact is, and I don't, say this carelessly, the fact is that most of the world is offering God unacceptable worship. Why? Because it's man-centered and works-oriented. And since a person's eternity, and again, I don't say that flippantly, since a person's eternity is dependent upon what kind of worshiper they are, true or false, it becomes extremely important that we understand what true worship is all about. Now, before we look at what true worship is, let's take some time this morning to look at what false or unacceptable worship is. So under the heading unacceptable worship, we're going to look at four different kinds of unacceptable worship. The first is obvious, but we have to start somewhere. It's the worship of false gods. The worship of false gods. As evangelicals, we know there is only one true God. The world is full of many gods and many lords that people worship. Paul said that very clearly. But we know that there is no other God except the God of the Bible. People get upset with us because that sounds very intolerant. Uh, That sounds, you know, very, you know, it's just too exclusive. Well, you know, you have to take it up with the Lord because he said it. Okay, Uh, he is the only true and living God. In Isaiah chapter 45, starting with verse 1, we read, Tell and bring forth your case. Okay, I mean, you got a case for another God like the Herod God said. Okay. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has worships different gods? All you folks. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I think it's pretty clear, right? There's not a lot of room for ambiguity there. God's pretty definitive, all right? All you folks, wor- he acknowledges a lot of folks worshiping all kinds of different gods. He said, Get together, make your case presented to me why you believe there are other gods. I'm telling you, there is no other God beside me. I'm the only true living God. God also told us that he is a jealous God who will not tolerate the worship of another. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And no doubt that was a throwback to what God said in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, where God told his people, You shall worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So God is saying to the people of this world, I am the only God there is that is real. And I am inviting you to worship me, to become one of my people. And yet the people of this world constantly refuse to worship and glorify the one and only true God of creation. Turn to Romans chapter 1. God talks about some of these folks. Do the Apostle Paul. Romans 1, starting with verse 20. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God is saying, I have revealed myself so clearly in creation, through the creation. You can't have a creation without a creator. Anymore, you can have a podium without a builder, okay? Or a building without an architect and construction people. God didn't feel the need to defend his existence Some truths are self-evident. That's why God just presents himself in Genesis 1. He doesn't say, oh, now I want to tell you about me. I want to prove that I exist. God just says, look to the creation. It is such a clear revelation of my existence that anyone who looks into the creation and denies my existence, I will hold accountable on the day of judgment. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God nor were thankful. Talking about the majority of the people of this world. This simply means, guys, that these people wouldn't worship him. They wouldn't give him, and this is what worship is, the glory, praise, thanksgiving, adoration, and honor that is due him. Not only that, not only would they not worship him, they went as far as to refuse to acknowledge his existence. Okay? Okay even though, again, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And refusing to worship the true God, they turned their backs on him. Verse 21 says, They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Having rejected God, the true God, they turned to idolatry and began to make for themselves carved images to worship. Verse 23, these folks changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Imagine rejecting the God who made them, refusing to worship the Creator, instead worshiping the creation, the ultimate folly, the very creation that should have pointed them to the Creator, they rejected Him and embraced the creation as God, the ultimate folly. And that wasn't all. Verse 22 tells us they actually thought it was very intelligent and wise to do so. Think of evolutionists evolutionists. In verse 24 we read, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. The worship of false gods is unacceptable to God. And those who practice this kind of thing will be judged by him someday, no matter, listen, how sincere they might have been when they engaged in this false worship. I think of Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but in the end thereof is the way of death. People think today that, you know, as long as a person is sincere and they're just really sincere, God will accept them. We're learning that is not what the Bible says, that God is pretty adamant. He, he doesn't leave a lot of room for ambiguity and us to kind of interpret. He's very clear, very definitive in what he has to say about how he is to be approached, how is to how he is to be worshipped. And he says that, look, I, I know that a lot of you are sincere. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But you have to understand you can be sincere, but you can also be sincerely wrong. There is a way that looks right to a person. They, they go down a path. Jesus said, you know, there's a broad way and there's a, a narrow way. People that go down the broad way think they're going to God and they're very sincere, many of them. But Jesus said that's deception. That's the devil's way to make people think that all roads lead to God. Jesus said, I'm the only way that leads to eternal life, to the Father. Nobody else gets to heaven except through me. Listen, everyone worships someone or something, even an atheist even an atheist. He worships worships himself in defiance of the true God and believes, listen, there's never going to come a day of reckoning. He's never going to have to stand before God someday and give an account for the life he has lived. Why? Because he's done away with God. In his mind, God doesn't exist. If there is no God, there's no day of judgment coming. There's no hell. He lives with impunity, or so he thinks. We see the rebellious heart of man portrayed in defiance of his creator's right to reign over our lives in William Henley's classic poem, Invictus. And by the way, this was the last thing Tim McVeigh recited before he was executed for his part in the 1995 Oklahoma City bombings. This is the heart of a rebel. This is the anthem of the atheist, the rebel. Tim McVeigh was a rebel. Henley was a rebel. Here's what Henley wrote. He said, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Oh, God, it's just chance, circumstance, but I'm staying strong. Okay? Okay. Beyond this place, this life of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, the grave. And yet, but the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. I don't fear death. I love this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. See that last little dig against the Bible? No matter not how straight the gate, Jesus strays the gate and narrows the way that leads to life through me. I don't buy that. Nor how charged with punishments the scroll. Picking up on what Paul said, that every sin we ever committed, God has written down in His ledger, a scroll, we'll say. And every person will either have to 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 pay for those sins for all eternity in hell, or they can receive Christ and Jesus will write on the bottom of their ledger, paid in full with his precious blood. The choice is yours. Henley didn't choose Christ. I don't think he's so defiant right now. That's the problem with this kind of thing. Voltaire was very defiant, wasn't he? The French atheist, uh, you, know, def- you know, just mocked God, mocked mercilessly Christians until he was on his deathbed. And he offered his doctor half of everything he owned. He was a wealthy man. He could give him just more, just give him six months more of life. Just the hours preceding his death, he began to scream, "More light! More light!" His nurse came out, white as a sheet, vowing never to again to tend the death of an atheist. They don't die so well. Look, there are many different gods that people can and do worship. People can make a god out of money, p- power, you know, political, um, you know, or uh, uh, underworld power, you know, a lot of things. Pleasure, material things, or, you know, they can make, as we just said, themselves into a god and worship themselves. That's what the, uh, the heart of, uh, of humanism is, the deification of man. One author rightly said, and I quote, In our society, idolatry is not so much a matter of making gods of wood and stone. We tend to worship gods of chrome and steel and glass, you know, automobiles, houses, antiques, 31-inch color screens. Well, it was a little while ago, I would say 65-inch color screens. (laughs) Our generation is steeped in idolatry, the author says. Only it is a respectable idolatry instead of a heathen idolatry. It is a polished form of idolatry instead of a crude form, end quote. But guys, idolatry is idolatry. It's all the same to God because worship given to anyone or anything other than the true and living God is unacceptable, no matter how sincere and well-intentioned it may be. And listen, will have eternal consequences attached to it for those who practice those things on the earth, false worship. In Exodus 20 verses 4 and 5 we read, God said, You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I the Lord your God, am a jealous God, who will not tolerate your affection for, other, for any other gods. Acts 17 verses 29 to 31, Paul picks up on this and said, Therefore, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Paul is saying, look, God was kind of lenient on people in the old days. Before Christ came, before the full revelation of God was given to man, Christ was our full revelation. And God was kind of, went easier on pagan people because they didn't know better. Even though they had the creation, He still held them accountable, but He went kind of easy on them. But now that Christ has come, there's no more excuse for ignorance. Jesus came and spoke clearly about who God is and what He requires of us and why Jesus came to die for our sins that we might have a relationship with Him. There's coming a day of judgment And this ignorance is not going to be tolerated by God. And when you stand before God, maybe not anyone here, hopefully not, but those who stand before God and say, well, Lord, I never knew this. You can't plead ignorance. No excuse. He's going to say, didn't you have my word? Well, yeah, but I never really read it. Well, why not? You had access to it, didn't you? Well, sure. I even had a copy in my bookshelf. But you never opened it. Well, no. You should have. You should have. So guys, the first kind of unacceptable worship is the worship of false gods. Number two is the worship of the true God in the wrong way. The worship of the true God in the wrong way. God has given to us, in his word, very explicit instructions on how he is to be properly worshipped. In his word, God has forbidden us from reducing him to an image, which we then bow down to and worship as God. You remember when the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt. God led them out through Moses, brought them to the base of Mount Sinai, and proposed a covenant with them. They accepted the covenant. And God says, fine, Moses, come up on top of the mount. I'll give you the terms of the covenant. We think of the Ten Commandments. Bigger than that, but that was a good place to focus on, all right? Well, Moses was up there a long time, what, 40 days, I think it was? After a while, the people grew, they grew, uh, uh, you know, Concerned, we'll say they grew weary. Uh, uh, they they got you know kind of antsy, so they said Moses, he's gone. We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron, will you make us a god that we can worship, right? So Aaron, you know, had him take off their earrings, which were a sign of paganism, by the way. When they wore earrings back then, it was actually a, a sign of paganism. All right. So they took their earrings, gave them to Aaron. He melted them down and produced this golden calf, right? And he says in Exodus chapter 32, verse 4, he said to the people, Aaron did. He said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now you read that and go, oh my goodness, they're worshiping worshiping false gods already. No, they weren't, although they had gotten used to that in Egypt. They had gotten used to that. And one of their favorite gods was the golden calf. Apis uh, was the Egyptian god, all right? But here, it it, it was not as blatant as that. It's a little more subtle. They were not worshiping a false god. They were worshiping the true god in a wrong way. They had reduced Jehovah God to an image. The very thing he had forbidden, all right? The very thing he had forbidden, they reduced God to an image. Again, Israel was not worshiping a false god. They were worshiping the true God in a wrong or in an acceptable way. And so God was so upset by this that he threatened to destroy the entire generation. Exodus 32 verse 10. Moses interceded on behalf of the people and God spared them. But it does communicate to us that this is a form of worship that not only does God forbid, he will severely punish. This is what Jesus meant when he said true worshipers worship God in spirit and in what? Truth. The idea is that true worshipers worship God according to his truth in his word. We don't reduce him, first of all, to an image. When people use an image to represent God and then use it to pray to or to worship, it's the same thing God became so angry angry at the children of Israel for doing. And guys, this would include the use of statues and crucifixes and pictures and tortillas. Check out last week's... If you weren't here last week, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Or anything else that is used to represent God in worship. Why? Don't miss this. Why was God so upset? Why did he want to wipe out the entire adult generation that got into the calf worship? Why was he so angry? Because God is an omnipresent spirit. He is without form as we know it and is not confined to any one place. Turn to Isaiah 40. I'll let you hear from the mouth of the Lord himself. Isaiah 40, starting with verse 18. I'm going to read it to you the NLT 2nd edition. So I'll just call it the NLT 2. Listen to what God said, Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom can you compare God? What image can you find to resemble him? Can he be compared to an idol formed in a mold overlaid with gold and decorated with silver chains? Or if people are too poor for that, they might at least choose wood that won't decay and a skilled craftsman to carve an image that won't totter and fall down. Haven't you heard? Don't you understand? Are you deaf to the words of God, the words he gave before the world began? Are you so ignorant? God sits above the circle of the earth. The people below seem like grasshoppers to him, verse 25. To whom, or what, will you compare me? Who is my equal, asks the Holy One. In other words, guys, if you try to reduce God to an image, an object of anything, if you turn him into something you can see and touch, whatever you make to represent him is infinitely less than what he really is. He is an infinite, omnipresent spirit and therefore it is a false representation of him it is a false God and you are guilty of worshiping him in a false or an unacceptable way I know people are sincere I know that they're sincere Um, I know that uh, when I was a Roman Catholic uh, I know that there's a lot of Roman Catholics who are very sincere folks uh, some I knew went to Mass every single day, and uh, they had to come to church because that's where God lived. Uh, he lived in the church, and the altar was his throne kind of a thing, and uh, the church was designed with angels on the ceiling painted and, and, uh, and statues and all kinds of things to give you the illusion you were in the presence of God. But whenever I hear a person say things like, you know, I have to get to church to worship God, or um, they think of God as the statue. On their dresser or the cross around their neck or the um, uh, whatever, you know, the little idol stuck uh, to, you know, the saint stuck on their dashboard. Whenever people begin to think of God in terms of locality, they uh, are, are actually being ignorant of what the Bible actually says about the God of the Bible, the true God. He is an omnipresent spirit. He has no form. He's everywhere. Not not only is he everywhere in the world or the universe, he is everywhere throughout time. His presence fills all of space, all of time. He is omnipresent, but he's everywhere, right? And whenever a person reduces God to an image in a locality, it says they don't have a personal relationship with God. They have religion. They not have a relationship. Because once I got saved... And I wasn't into that as much as some. But once I got saved, the Spirit of God moved into my heart, the Spirit of truth. I began to have a hunger for the Word. I began to read what God said. And God taught me about Him and how He was to be properly worshipped. Those ignorant times that Paul talked about, those times of ignorance where I didn't know the truth, God cut me some slack. But once I got saved... He demanded that I not be ignorant anymore. I was to go to his word. I was to study his word, that I could understand him and tell others about him in truth. Turn to Psalm 139. Listen to what David said about the omnipresence of God. Psalm 139, verse 7. David said, I can never escape from your spirit, from your presence, Lord. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. Guys, to reduce God to anything which you then pray to or worship, is to bow before a false god and god condemns that in the strongest way possible maybe you've heard people say i know i have well god as i perceive him to be is such and such and so and so and i believe that god will accept me because you know i'm a good person and i'm sincere look someone's personal perception of god is not important it doesn't matter who they think god is only matters who god knows he is and that's why we need to go to the Bible. But it isn't important what they perceive God to be, and neither is it important about their, idea, their ideas about how he is to be worshipped. All that matters is what God has revealed about himself and how he is to be worshipped. And that's, that's the bottom line that a lot of people are missing. They think that because they're sincere, God will account their sincerity for some kind of righteousness. And the Bible says he accounts faith for righteousness, not sincerity. Again, there is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, thereof is the way of death. You can be sincere but sincerely wrong, as we just said. It only matters what God says about Himself and how He is to be worshipped. Something Jesus made very clear in John four verse twenty-three. He said, "God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth." Very important. No negotiations or uh, room for any kind of uh, uh, you know any kind of doubt or or, you know, um, confusion. Very clear what God says. So, so far under the heading of unacceptable worship, we've looked at the worship of false gods. Number two, the worship of the true God in the wrong way, which is reducing him to an image. Number three, the worship of the true God in a self-styled way. Uh, sounds similar but different, okay? This form of worship is where a person worships the true God, but then formulates and molds their worship of him into their own personal liking or definition. In other words, they're doing their own thing. They're worshiping God on their terms, or in other words, they're guilty of do-it-yourself or self-styled worship. Now, the Jewish people were guilty of this. In Romans chapter 10, verse 3, Paul said, For they, the unsaved Jewish population, For they being ignorant of God's, I'm going to paraphrase, God's system of righteousness and seeking to establish their own system of righteousness, have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God through Christ. In other words, they refused to worship God according to his guidelines and had instead established their own system of worship. What was that? The law equals righteousness. Think of, when you say righteousness, think of being right with God, going to heaven, okay? You say, but wait a minute. God gave the Jewish people the law. They were just doing what God told them to do. True. But God told them that there was coming a day when he was going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. He said this way back in Jeremiah 31. It wasn't a new thing. They, They knew this. The old covenant under Moses was going to pass away. And a new covenant was going to be instituted. Paul the Apostle said that the law was never given by God to make us righteous, keeping ten commandments, and if you do it and you get to go to heaven, you have to be perfect to get to heaven by keeping God's commandments. And because that wasn't possible, and after 1,500 years of Moses to Christ, they figured that out, well, most of them were ready for something new. Most of them were crying out in their hearts, God, is there another way for me to get to heaven because I can't get there by the law? And Jesus said, that's right. You can't, but I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Paul said the law was our schoolmaster, our tutor that brought showed us we couldn't keep the law. Perfectly. And it was God's way of bringing us to Christ who instituted the new covenant, right? The new covenant. The problem is, the Jewish people, many of them, never made the transition. When Christ came, they rejected him as their Messiah. They didn't embrace the new covenant. And so they kept on with Judaism. When that happened, after Christ had lived and died and rose again, and ascended back to his father, and these Jews were still practicing their Judaism, that's when it became a false religious system. Remember when Jesus hung on the cross, before he dismissed his spirit, he said, it is finished. Bowed his head, dismissed his spirit. At that instant, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. God was saying, the old covenant is over. You don't need a priest to come into my presence. You are now the priest of the new covenant through my son. You can come to me anytime you want. You don't need animal sacrifices. They were temporary and limited. My son has come and given the ultimate sacrifice himself. It's all, Judaism is done. It served his purpose. The law brought you to my son. What did they do? Did they rejoice? No, most of them sewed the stupid curtain back up and kept on worshiping God through animal sacrifices. They kept on with religion. They rejected a relationship. And after 38 years, God said, That's enough. Had the Romans come in and destroy the temple. I said, It's over. It's over. You still have Jews today and many others who try to worship God on their terms religion, and so on. It's all too common today, but it's unbiblical and unacceptable to God. This would include the worship of God through things like rituals, sacraments, lighting of candles, barefoot processions. We've talked about some of this. Any attempt to approach God on our terms through man-made forms of worship is totally unacceptable to Him. Again, think of Cain. Cain. Adam and Eve... Had many children, but uh, originally it was Abel and it was Cain, okay? God had said to both of them, He had instructed both of them on the proper sacrifices to bring Him, the proper way to approach Him. Abel listened, and He brought God the sacrifices God had ordained, and God accepted Him. Apparently, Cain decided, Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I think is right. I'm going to give God the sacrifice that I think He should accept. I'm sincere. Why would, he, why would he reject me? But he did, right? So Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he's pouting. And God said to Cain, Cain, why are you upset? You know, if you do what's right, I'll accept you. That's what God is saying to the whole world. I'm not going to accept your false worship, but if you do what's right, you come to my son, receive him, and approach me through him, I'll receive you. I'm a God that wants to embrace all people to be mine. In the book of Leviticus chapter 10, it records for us the beginning of the priestly ministry uh, to God in the tabernacle. So this is the beginning of the priesthood. Of course, Aaron was chosen by God to be the high priest. Aaron had four sons uh, who were all entering the priesthood on this day. Two of them, uh, their names were Nadab and Abihu. In Leviticus 10, we come to their ordination day into the priesthood where they would now begin to lead the people of Israel in worship to God. If you turn to Leviticus chapter 10, I want to read you the first three verses. Leviticus 10, starting with verse 1. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. God will not tolerate worship by those who take the holiness of God lightly. Verse 3 makes that abundantly clear. I'm appalled. I, I love the fact that God tells us as his children to call him Abba which means daddy. He wants that intimate relationship with us. Like a child to a father, right? But remember, he's still our father. And with it comes respect, okay? I'm appalled at the lack of respect among those today in our culture who call themselves Christians, you know? And they say dumb things, like, you know, the big guy upstairs. I've seen t-shirts. Jesus is my homie, my homeboy. Thinking, what are you, your mind? He's not your homeboy. He's the God of the universe. Have some respect. Where is the respect gone for our Lord? I love the closeness and intimacy. But I, I will never say or do anything that will drag God off his down off his lofty throne. Some people, I'm convinced, you know, if Jesus walked into a room, they say, Hey, grab a beer, watch, watch the cup game together, Lord. Our proper response, if Jesus walked into this room, would be fall on our faces so hard and worship him. Not to say, grab a beer, let's sit down and watch the game together. This is where we are as a culture. It's amazing to me. Now, first of all, God says, you you must regard me as holy if you're going to approach me. Number two, he doesn't want our worship or service to him to be done under any artificial stimulants. Only from a heart of love and devotion. Now, from verse 9 of Leviticus 10, we get the impression that these two guys have been out partying the night before, that they have been drinking. And God said, when you approach me, you must not be under the influence of any drink. Today we would say, well, what God is saying is if we're going to serve him in ministry, we must not do it through any artificial stimulants. What do I mean? Well, There's a lot of people that get involved in ministry because of the money. They like the career. Uh, Some denominations give a very nice salary package with benefits and retirement. Some people like the recognition. They like to stand up in front of people and and, and be, be thought of as a great spiritual leader. It's a lot of incentives that stimulate people's hearts to serve God. God says, I don't want that. You serve me, I do it because you love me. Not because you want to get stuff from me or the denomination. The Lord had instructed them, these two men, on the proper way to approach him and worship him. But in their misguided zeal, which was not according to the knowledge God had given them, about the right way to approach him, they did their own thing and so God judged them. When it says in verse 1 that Nadab and Abihu each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, the the, uh, NIV translates profane fire as unauthorized fire. See, God had commanded the high priest in Leviticus 16 verse 12, the high priest was commanded to burn the incense, incense with the coals that were taken from the brazen altar of sacrifice. But Nadab and Abihu supplied their own fire, and God rejected it. The fire of our zeal for God has to be born out of a heart of sacrifice. Not fire for anything else. What God's going to do for me. I'm going to get in the ministry because i want to drive one of them Cadillacs that my other pastor was driving. I want to get one of them 54 million dollar jets so I can fly around the world. Wow. You know, we often talk as Christians, we often talk about being on fire for the Lord. That's fine. That's great. If it isn't unauthorized fire. In other words, serving and worshipping God in a way that is contrary to what he has commanded in his word. It's good to do, to want to do a good thing. Listen to me. It's good to want to do a good thing when serving God. But you have to do it in the right way. According to what God has prescribed in his word. I think of David, right? When David became king, he wanted to get the Ark of the Covenant, which had been out of Jerusalem for many years. He wanted to get it and bring it to Jerusalem because he wanted to put it in the tabernacle again where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God. You couldn't really worship God without it. It had been gone for many years. Saul wasn't a man of worship. He didn't care about the ark. David was. When David became king, first order of business, go get the ark, bring it back to Jerusalem, and let's begin to worship God as a nation. Let's make God the focus. The only way he's going to bless is if we make him the center of the nation. So David's, you know, got good intentions. He's zealous. What he didn't do was he didn't read... What God had said in his word was the proper way to transport the ark. It was never to be touched. It represented God's presence. It was to only be transported on poles, on the shoulders of a very specific family of Levites, the Kohathites, and covered first. So nobody looked at it. Nobody touched it. Well, David, in his hurry, his zeal, his haste, he puts the thing on a cart, Pulled by a couple of oxen, two brothers involved. Ahio was on riding the oxen in front, and Uzzah his brother was on the side, walking with next to the cart. When all of a sudden, the either the oxen hit a rock or the or a cart hit a rut, and all of a sudden the ark begins to shake like it's going to topple off into the dirt. And Uzzah just instinctively reaches out and grabs it to steady it, and God strikes him dead in the spot. David was furious and frightened. God, why would you do that? Here we're doing something good for you. I mean, wasn't this a good thing? Why would you kill a man? Because David had good intentions, but didn't carry out his service for God according to what God had said in his word. And Uzzah? was a Kohathite. From the time he was a little boy, he was trained on the proper way to transport the ark of God. He knew better. Well-intentioned as he might have been. And by the way, I know he didn't want the ark to topple off into the dirt. Guess what? The dirt obeys God. When things are planted, they come forth from the ground as God has ordained. Only man is a rebel. And man can't touch manhandle and approach God any way he wants, God will always uh, cause that person to reap judgment. Eventually, David read the scriptures, went and got the ark the right way, and God blessed it. You want to do a good thing for the Lord? Great. You want to serve him? Awesome. Do it the right way. Do it the right way. All right, we're done, but one more. Unacceptable worship would include the worship of false gods. Number two, the worship of the true God in the wrong way. Number three, the worship of the true God in a self-styled way. And finally, the worship of the true God in the right way with the wrong attitude. And guys, here we finally come to where most of us evangelicals live it from time to time. I mean, we'd all say amen to those first three unacceptable forms of worship, Right? Yet even if we are worshiping the true God in the right way, if we're doing it with a wrong attitude, our worship is still unacceptable to Him. Turn to Malachi 1. Quickly, we're done. Malachi chapter 1. My mother-in-law calls it Malachi. When you're Italian, it affects everything. But here, Malachi 1, starting with verse 6. The Lord of heaven's armies says to the priest, A son honors his father, and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, well, how have we ever shown contempt for your name? You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. Then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices. You defile them, God said, by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor. See how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. You see, in the law, God commanded them that they were only to bring God they're best animals. Well, he's a great and awesome king. He deserved the best, right? He said, you know, you can't bring uh, you know anything with spot or blemish, any natural birth defect or acquired injury, scar. Your, your sacrifice have to be without spot or blemish, right? They have to be perfect because it um, uh, it symbolizes your heart for me and how much you reverence me and honor me. You give me your best, right? But they were giving the God the junk. I mean, you know, some animal came down with a disease and they're trying to nurse it back to life and it took a turn for the worse. Honey, it's only got maybe a day left. Let's run it down to the tabernacle, at a temple, and give it to God. I mean, you know, it's going to croak anyways. We can't use it. Give it to God, right? <laughs> that way we're clear. Or if a, or if a, a lamb wandered off and a wolf kind of chewed it up and I think it was you know, kind of on its last leg, we run it down to the temple. Give it to God. We got to offer him something. We can't use this anymore. Look, be like today the Jewish people trying to offer God roadkill if the temple was still around, right? Verse 13, you say it's too hard to serve the Lord. Well, I like the way the New King James translates it. You say, oh, what weariness to serve the Lord. In other words, oh, no, church again. Church again. Did we just go last week? Church again. God says, and you turn up your noses at my command, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these, asks the Lord? You know, as far as this weariness goes, and this is what we're talking about, okay? So a lot of people who are Christians, and they, they understand who the true God is, and they do offer him, uh, you know, offerings that are consistent with what he has said, it's the heart attitude that's wrong. It's the attitude that's wrong. I mean, when people first get saved, they are so filled with the Spirit of God. I've seen this so many times. They are so fired up about God. And every time the church doors are open for whatever we got going on, they're here. They can't get enough of God. They're always in the Bible. But as time goes on, sometimes it's a few weeks, sometimes a few months, sometimes a few years. The fire begins to wane. And at one point, they stop coming um, all the time, and they start coming just Wednesdays and Sunday mornings. Then Wednesday stops. Then Sunday's not every week anymore. It's like every other week. Finally, it's like once a month. Eventually, it's like every couple months, you know. The idea is that they no longer have a passion for God. They They no longer have a passion. Their heart has gotten cold. And even when they do come to church, They're singing songs, but, you know, they're singing where they're looking around or looking at their watch or messing with their phone. The attitude is wrong. And it begs the question as we end this, do we give God our best? Or do we offer him the leftovers of our day, our money, our affections? Some people are are so in love with the things of this world, they don't have any room left in their heart for God. I'm talking about his people now, that have kind of wandered from him. I mean, do we honor God? And God went on to say in Malachi, "I said, you know, he said, the fact that my people are not honoring me. Well, unbelievers, they're not going to honor me either if my people don't honor me. Don't you understand God is saying to Israel, the way you reverence me and how you treat me is a witness to the world. And if you do that right and honor me properly, he said, people are going to be drawn to me because of your witness. Let me just say this. I don't know if it was in Habakkuk or somewhere in Malachi. But God said to Israel at one point, He said, Have you ever wondered? why that you work so hard you're working day and night you never have enough money something always comes up and eats it away you never get ahead you ever think about that Gaza? i'm doing that i'm allowing you to put all this extra money into bags with holes in it so that it just blows away why? Because you have not kept me as the priority, as the focus. Do you realize that Israel, the the tabernacle was in the very center of the camp of Israel? Every time they sit, they made camp, uh, all the tribes were around facing in. We talked about this. The first thing a Jew saw when he got up in the morning and left his tent was the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. Last pillar of cloud. The last thing he saw before he went into his tent was the Shekinah glory. God, pillar of fire. God was the center of the nation. God was teaching that very clearly, right? But they drifted at one point. They came back from the captivity, and they started to rebuild the temple, which was in ruins. They got tired, and they left it, and they just focused on their houses and kept beautifying more and more their houses. They got their priorities completely out of whack, and God says, you know, has it ever dawned on you? Why you're working so hard and never can get ahead. If you put me first, fix my temple, get back to worshiping me, putting me as the priority and the focus of your life, I'll take care of the other stuff. You'll have everything you need to live. That's some powerful words for this generation of Americans. All because we have lost God as our focus. We give them lip service as Christians. I'm not pointing any comments to anybody in this room. I'm talking about the church in general. Many Christians give God lip service, but it's obvious He's not the focus, He's not the center, He's not the priority. You know, the word worship is a shortened form of the word worth-ship, kind of hard to say worth so they shortened it to worship. The word means showing God the worth He holds in our lives, well, that's assuming He does hold a place where we consider how precious we are, how it is to have Him. Thomas Carlyle said, wonder is the basis of worship. Awe, wonder for God, is the heart of worship. Another author said this, and we'll close. He said, most middle class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. Think about that. He just nailed it. Most middle class Americans tend to worship their work, to work at their play, and to play at their worship. As a result, their their meanings and values are distorted. Everything's mixed up. Their relationships disintegrate faster than so they can keep them in repair and their lifestyles resemble a cast of characters running around in search for a plot, end quote. You get your priorities out of whack where God's no longer the focus of your life, you're going to run around like a chicken without a head. Your life will be chaotic, confusing, in disarray. you got to get back to the priority. Worship as someone has said, is the ultimate human priority. Next week, we'll finish our series, God willing, which we've entitled, True Worship. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word has a tendency, Lord, to right our ships, which have drifted at times, our lives. Thank you, Lord, that as we study your word, you bring conviction and correction And if we will repent and get right, well, of course, correction will lead us into blessings, fruitfulness. Our marriages will be harmonious. Our families will be blessed. Lord, give us grace. Maybe some in this very room have drifted. And we pray, Lord, that you'll bring us all to an awareness of this, bring us back to you, that we might walk in truth with you, that we may offer the true God, true worship from a loving heart. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.